following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. We are so excited to have you here. We have a really special treat. And I just wanted to take a minute to say this. I've known Morgan Maitland since he was a tiny little young boy. I think he was two or three when I met him for the first time and have seen him throughout the years and watched him grow. I taught him in fifth and sixth grade as this little rug rat. But to see him continue to mature, to see him just uh, give his life to Christ and to watch even the interaction of the impact he had on Jesse and Terrell. Morgan served as our high school pastor for a number of years and is an amazing man of God who's incredibly gifted. Uh, and if you don't know him, if you're newer, he and his wife, Bree, Bree is, I think her, her maiden name was Tinahui. She's a Tanawi, folks. And so they are, are part of the FBC, FBC family. Uh, Morgan is a child of FBC and is now the teaching pastor at Summit Bible Church up in Fontana. So what, I, what thrilled, we got we to clap up top. What thrilled me about today was listening to Jesse and Terrell talk about Morgan's impact on their life. And you know what's unbelievable? We're going to see in years to come, we'll have Terrell and Jesse up here preaching with a new generation that's in junior high and high school and just watching that continue to happen. It's an amazing thing. So Morgan and Bree have three kids, soon to be four, but he is an unbelievable preacher and you are in for a treat. So let's welcome Morgan Maitland. Hi, FPC. That's a long walk. Let's close in prayer. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, thank you so much for having me and, and welcoming me and, and encouraging me. All the people who have come up and mentioned uh, the impact that I've made in your students' lives, your children's life, your life. That means a whole lot. Uh, that's, that's just great motivation for me to keep on pressing on and keep preaching the gospel and ministering to God's people. Um, it's exciting to come and preach here at FBC, the church that raised me. I'm so thankful for the men, the elders, the mentors here that I have and that are still faithfully raising up the next generation and making that impact in this valley. And so this has a special place in my heart. It's always a privilege to come back and preach. So, uh, I'm glad to be here. I hope you're excited to get into God's Word. Why don't you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. For you TC guys, this is a TC verse, okay? We're going to look afresh at Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25. I like to start with reading the Word, so... I'm going to read the passage from 19 to 25. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. I know that's anathema here, you Nasby folks. But follow along with me. Verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In 2020, we experienced what the world called a pandemic, coronavirus. Do you remember? In the subsequent months and years, state governments put together their list of what they deemed were essential industries and services. Here are just a few essential needs and services of the community, as deemed by our California government. Grocery stores, pharmacies, and hospitals. Of course. We need food, we need health care. Utility services, such as water, electricity, gas companies, and services. HVAC, we need our air conditioning in California. Other emergency services, uh, such as police force, fire, rescue, EMS, animal control. Interesting. E-commerce services. Workers and warehouses that support e-commerce. We need Amazon. We need our packages delivered. Entertainment industry services. On this list as essential. Which could include uh, film crews, actors, studios, broadcasting units, and strip clubs. As long as they maintain healthy distance, of course. Oh, and the occasional protest or riot, provided it's for a good cause. Those gatherings, those industries, those services were deemed essential. Essentially, our California government told you what you need. They told you what you need. Anything missing from that list? Anything essential? I don't know what you think you need this morning. I don't know what would be on your list, your mental list of what you need. Do you need to have your kitchen remodeled because it's falling apart? Do you need more money to have the kitchen remodeled because it's falling apart? Do you need to see a chiropractor because your back's falling apart? Do you need a haircut? I don't know. What do you need? What do you need right now? I'll tell you what should be at the top of every single one of our lists. We need the church. You need the church. And I'm not talking about your property. I'm talking about the church that Jesus builds. The gathering of God's people. For Christ in his glory. To love him, worship him, serve him, and then serve each other. You need the church. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. 
FBC. This is one of the, you know, the hallmarks, the pillars of this church is that you recognize you need this church. But I want to remind you afresh today of the importance of the church and the right motivations that should draw you here. The reason you need the church. Because maybe you've lost that. And you need that fresh reminder. So in this passage, Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25, I see four reasons you need the church. Four reasons. And I'll make up the outline. The first reason you need the church is because Jesus draws us here. Jesus is the reason we gather. There's a debate about who the church is for today. Some say the church is for unbelievers. It's for reaching the lost. Others say, no, the church is for believers. It's for edifying and equipping the saints. I say neither. The church is for Christ. His glory, His worship, His praise, His service. It's for Him, not for us. And so Jesus draws us here. The church is His and it is for Him. Now this passage is known uh, as the lettuce patch of your Bible. The lettuce patch. That's what Mark Dever calls it because you have three lettuce commands okay, in the passage. And you, you, you heard them as I emphasized in my reading. These are first person plural uh, exhortations you can say. These are things that we need to do together. Us. Let us. The first one we see in verse 22. Look down. Let us draw near. Draw near. To draw near is to gather close or to arrive together. I want you to picture in your mind baby chicks gathering under the wings of the mother hen. For you athletes, I want to picture in your mind of, of the players coming to the huddle at the call of the coach. Military, I want want the picture in your mind of the soldiers, wherever they are, when they hear that siren, they come and stand at attention before their sergeant. This is what what it means to draw near, to gather close at the attention and to the object, which our object is Christ. He draws us near. He draws us near. And look at the attitude as we draw near, the attitude that we can have in verse 22, we draw near with a true heart. That is a heart that is proven truthful or pure. We, we gather, we draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That is total confidence. Not a confidence in ourselves, by the way, It's a confidence, full assurance of faith. It's a confidence that's derived from faith. And and faith is a confidence in another. So you don't come to church drawn near self-confident, boastful, arrogant, like you deserve to be here. You come confidence and full assurance of faith. Your confidence is in another. Not only can you come with a a pure heart, a true heart, and full assurance of faith, but you come with your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. 
Sprinkled clean, that's in the passive, meaning someone else has to clean your heart. You can't clean it yourself. Someone else cleans you and washes you from the inside out. From an evil conscience. Well, you know what that is. We all have a conscience. And sometimes our conscience nags us. We, we feel guilty about our sins. That's an evil conscience. Guilt, ashamed, nagging, regret. Do you have an evil conscience today? Is it nagging you this morning? Well, the passage says that we can draw near with confidence, a true confidence, full assurance, without a nagging conscience, our hearts washed, our conscience clear, and our bodies washed with pure water. See, the kind of washing that takes place, it cleanses us from the inside out. It's not just an external cleansing, but for sure it includes an external cleansing. You don't have a clean heart and then produce bad words. You don't have a clean heart and produce filthy actions. If your heart is clean, then your words and your actions will reflect that. Do you want this this morning? Do you want a clear conscience? Because your conscience is nagging you. Do you want a sense of being washed? Because you know you're filthy. You're guilty. All of us are. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If not this past week, which you have, maybe this morning as you come with a bad attitude, a guilty conscience, sin unaddressed in your life, This passage tells us that you can draw near with full confidence without the evil conscience because of someone else. How can we do this? How can we draw near with this kind of attitude? Here's the key. It's because of the one who calls us. You see the word since, since in verse 19. And since in verse 21. You can, that, that's giving you the cause. You can, you can uh, retranslate that because. So because of these things, you can draw near with hearts washed, pure conscience, and bodies washed with pure water. These are the two causes in context that draw us near. They're like, um, they're like, And these two causes are anchored in a person. It's like the two hands of of this person drawing us close to himself. And of course the person is Jesus Christ. These two things draw us near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, full assurance of faith, and our bodies washed with pure water. What are they? What are the two causes that should draw you here this morning? The first is that Jesus bought us with a sufficient sacrifice. Jesus bought the church with his sacrifice. There's a big therefore in verse 19. I know we're doing a lot of Bible study, but you need to look and see this. Verse 19, therefore. What do you you ask when you see a therefore? What is this therefore, therefore? What happened in the context that sets the stage for us drawing near this morning. Well, I'll tell you what happened. A sufficient sacrifice happened. 
Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 to 18 tells us that Jesus Christ made a sufficient sacrifice. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That indicates it's complete, it's sufficient, no more need for more sacrifices. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, being made holy, being washed. That's why that therefore is there. A sufficient sacrifice was made by Jesus Christ. So therefore, brothers, since or because we have confidence. Well, there's that confidence again. We want confidence to draw near to God to enter the holy place. The the psalmist asks this question, how can a man ascend the holy hill of God? That's a good question. How can you and I, filthy sinners, guilt-ridden consciences, ascend to the holy hill of God? If God is holy and if He's perfect, which He is, then how can you and I enjoy or have right relationship with Him? How can we much less have confidence to draw close to His presence? Don't miss this. We have confidence to enter the holy places by what? The blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. On the evening when Jesus died on the cross, the afternoon, the curtain door to the Holy of Holies in the temple literally split and tore into two. That curtain was set there as a separation from sinful people, and a holy God. But it's split in two when Christ died. Why? Because symbolically, it signified that because of His sacrifice, sinners now have access into the Holy of Holies. That's you and I, friend. Because Jesus Died because he made a great sacrifice, you and I can have full confidence, a clear conscience, and total cleansing. Not because you're great, not because you're good enough, not because you washed yourself up this morning and said the prayer, the quick ritualistic prayer, God forgive me for my sins, so I'm ready for church. No, you're here, you're drawn here today because Jesus made a sufficient sacrifice. Don't come to church on a Sunday without remembering the cross and the empty tomb. That the reason you're here, the reason you and I are here today, not because of us, because of Him and the sacrifice He made. He draws us close by His sufficient sacrifice. The second arm that pulls us here today is that Jesus rules the church By his authority. Look at verse 21. The second since. Since. Essentially there's a sufficient sacrifice. By his blood. And since verse 21. We have a great priest. Over the house of God. 
What do priests do? Priests oversee worship, essentially. They enforce God's order in his temple. They were, in that way, mediators between God and men. To worship God, you had to go through the priest, and the priest had to go through the curtain. But the curtain has been torn in two, it's been done away with, and now we have the priest. But the priest has been replaced by a better one. See, the problem with the priests in the past is that the priests were sinners. So not only did they have to make a a sacrifice for the sins of the people, but they had to make sacrifices for their own sins. They're not perfect men. And so they're insufficient priests. They're faulty priests. They're insufficient mediators between God and men. But here, because of Jesus, we have a new high priest. And he's better than the previous priests. Why or how? Namely, he was tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Perfect. Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 5.8. He was obedient as a perfect son. Hebrews 5.9. By his righteousness, he became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus had what all of those priests before didn't have. He's, fr- he's cut from a different cloth. The cloth of Melchizedek. With no origin, no source, Jesus was true and pure. Righteous. Perfect. And he's the one who rules his church. See the great priest over the house of God? I have good news for you this morning. Sinful men are not lords over the church. Sinful men do not have the ultimate authority over God's church. Sinful men don't determine whether or not you can come and worship. As if they have another authority outside of Jesus' delegated authority. The church is Christ's. He rules over it. He oversees worship. And he does delegate authority, but a subservient authority to himself. To men, to elders, to lead, to shepherd, to serve. But those men, sinful as they are, don't exercise ultimate authority over the church. And that's good news, friend, because you're drawn here not by sinful men. You're drawn here by a perfect Lord, a perfect priest. You go through Him to worship. I've heard this excuse, maybe you've heard it. I don't go to church anymore because. I was axed by bad leaders. I was abused, I was hurt, I was betrayed by bad leadership. So I don't go to the church anymore. Have you heard that? I just heard that last Sunday from a guy who attended our church. That's why he doesn't go to church anymore, because he was hurt by bad leaders. Well, listen, two things. It's not the church's fault. It's not Christ's fault. Sinful men may have overstepped wrongfully so. That's not good cause to stop going to the church or to say you don't need it anymore. It's not their church, it's Christ's. Christ calls you here. And as elders, as under shepherds, we need to be careful to not lord over God's people, Christ's sheep. We need to be careful not to domineer or to manipulate His people. They're not ours, they're His. And so, leading in the church is serving Him. 
and stewarding his authority over his people. Jesus pulls us here by his great sacrifice. He pulls us here by his authority. And he draws us to himself to worship, serve, love him. Let me, let me end this point by just asking you this question. Why did you come to church today? Why did you come to church today? Is it because your parents made you, woke you up and said, you've got to come to church? Is it just your religious duty? Has it become just a routine? It's like, this is just what we do on Sundays. We get up and we go to church. It's just like getting up on Monday morning and going to work or getting up on Monday and going to school. It's part of our routine. Are you here to impress somebody? Are you here to please your spouse? Or to please your small group leader? To get them off your back? Why are you here today? If it's not for him, you're not here. You're not here yet. If it's not just to hear his name, to hear him preach through his word, to sing his praises, to serve him, to glorify him, to show his love to other people, you're not here yet. You are drawn close. You are here. If you're here for Christ, for him and nobody else, him primarily, him ultimately, because he died for you and made a sufficient sacrifice for you to have access to God. And because he calls you by his authority, it's his church, he's building it. Are you here for Christ? Or are you here for someone else? Jesus draws us here. I want you to know something. I'm not here for you. I'm not here for me. I'm here for him. And that's for your benefit. Because if I'm here for him, then I'm a a lit torch. I'm an ignited flame that loves Christ and will draw you closer to him, not to me. We come and we gather for Christ, our great high priest, the Lord of the church. We worship our founder. That's why we're here. That's a reason that you need the church. The second reason you need the church is that the word of God brings us hope. Look down at verse 23. It's the second let us exhortation. It's our second let us head in the let us patch. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The confession as I understand it is the collection of God's promises in his word. This would include promises in the Old Testament. How well do you know your Old Testament? How well do you know the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the new covenants? Because if you knew the Abrahamic covenant, you would know that God promised to bless all the nations through his seed. If you knew the Davidic covenant, then you know that God promised to establish his forever king and his forever kingdom. If you knew the new covenant, you know that God promises to not only regenerate the hearts of his people, but also to restore the people of Israel through repentance and faith in Jesus the Messiah. Those are promises that should bring us hope. Promises that should cause us to lean forward. 
The confession also includes promises of the New Testament. How well do you know your New Testament? How comforted in are you by promises like from Jesus where he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'll receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. That's a promise. Or how about this one? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Or how about this one? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Or how about this one? If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And even if we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. Those promises give you hope, give you great confidence. Those are the promises that you hear preached from God's word. Those promises that we sing in the songs as we gather together. The word of God brings us hope. Uh, I have a dear brother at our church, member Tom, who was recently diagnosed with stage four kidney, kidney cancer. Tom has three children. Uh, oldest is 11, all the way down to six years old. Young kids. He's going to die. Um, and he, he's doing immunotherapy just to live longer, to spend more time with his kids before he goes. Tom came to me after his first session of immunotherapy and I asked him how it went and he just said, Morgan, I don't know how people do this without hope in Christ. So you're right, Tom, I don't know. If their hope is in this medicine, they've got stage four cancer. That's a false hope. His wife, Michelle, came up to me same Sunday and she said, in a different conversation, Morgan, I don't know how people do this without the church, without the community of Christ. I want you to know, those are not two um, unrelated statements. It's not that people can do it with the hope of Christ without the community of Christ, or vice versa. That people can do it with the community of Christ without the hope of Christ. Those two things come together. The hope of Christ is found in the community of Christ as we hold fast to the promises of Scripture. The church holds fast to the confession of hope together. I just did some cross-referencing in my Bible study to see where else this command to hold fast was given in relation to traditions, doctrine, or confession. Sure enough, guess what? It's always plural. It's always something we do together. We hold this line, our doctrine, our confession, our hope, together. We must do it together. That's how God designed his community. Something I learned here at FBC, and I'm forever grateful for, and and Chris taught this to us in training center. He just beat us over the head with this. Is that doctrinal fidelity is always developed in community. Doctrinal fidelity is always developed in community. Your doctrine, your theology must be soundly developed in community with one another, in community with the local church, in community with the church fathers and the theologians that have come before us through church history. It's developed in community. And I'll add this. Doctrinal fidelity is always lost 
individually. It's always lost when young men come up to me and say, hey, I've been doing some studying on my own. I don't know about this whole inerrancy of Scripture thing. I don't know about this exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way, truth, and life thing. I don't know if Jesus is God anymore or if my confession matters anymore. Almost always, where did you get that? Oh, I was just doing my own personal study. YouTube, podcasts, books. Okay. Doctrinal fidelity is always developed in community. We need each other to hold fast to the confession because guess what? It gives us hope. You deconstruct Jesus, you lose hope. You deconstruct the doctrine of who Christ is and what He has done and the sufficiency of His Word and the inerrancy of these promises. They will not fail. He who promised will not fail. You deconstruct that, you have no hope. You're cutting your legs out. We need to hold fast to this line together. That's the second reason you need the church. The third reason you need the church is the church needs you. You need the church because the church needs you. Here's our last lettuce head in the lettuce patch. Verse 24. It says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice, this is where we get to an outward emphasis. We've been having this upward emphasis. It was a It was a call to draw near to God together. It's a call to hold fast to His promises together. And now we look out. It's almost like we we went into the huddle and we put our hands in for the cause of Christ. We're all here for Jesus, right? We're here because Jesus died for our sins and He draws us close to Himself. And we clench our fists on the line. We hold fast to the doctrine and the promises and the confession that we hold true. And then we look up like, wait a minute, there's other people in this huddle. There's different people in this huddle. There's people that I would not, like, talk to at Sprouts. <laughs> and we're together on this? What do I do with these people? What do I do with these people? Well, well now the author points us outward. We're, we're to look at others here. And, and we need each other. The church needs us for three reasons. And we see them in verses 24 to 25. First thing, we need to be provoked. We need to be provoked. I love this. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up. You know what that means? Let me give you some word pictures. What do frothers do to milk or cream? They agitate it. What does fiberglass do to your skin? It irritates it. What does a lighted match do to kerosene? It ignites it. What does my seven-year-old do to my five-year-old? He prov- she provokes him. Those are the four glosses of the word stir up. That's what we need. We all need this. Here's another one. 
like spurs to a horse. We need to spur each other forward. To what? To what? To love and good works. Here's the difference between us and my seven-year-old. We don't provoke to anger. We don't provoke to make people bitter or to discourage people. We don't agitate for the purpose of agitation. We spur one another toward love and good works. Let's be honest. We need this. I need this. I'm thankful as I look out and see men who have provoked me to love and good works, who have at times irritated me toward it, at times rubbed me the wrong way just to get me out of my sinful bents and habits toward Christ and toward loving Him and loving one another. We need to feel the heat sometimes of brothers and sisters who know us well enough to speak the truth into our life. We need people next to us that take the spurs to our bellies and get us going. We need to be positively provoked by the example of fellow believers who sacrifice themselves and serve selflessly. Let me just tell you something. Comfortable is not a good feeling at church. It's not good. If you walk out of here comfortable in the sense that you have your life still together, you've protected all your baggage, you've not shown anybody you're ugly, and you feel like, oh, I feel good and I can leave together without anybody knowing who I am or what I've done this week, that's not a good feeling. But if, if you're comfortable in the sense that, hey, I could sit down in here and I could really let my hair down, I can let people into my life, they can know my heart. They can know the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I am comfortable to share that with them because they love Jesus. Well, that's a good comfortable. But I'll tell you, a lot of people come to church for the previous comfortable. That is to hide themselves, to pretend like they have it all together, and to protect people from getting inside. You need, friend, you need somebody inside. You need people that love you enough to speak the truth and to point out your weaknesses in love. You need people to correct you when you're wrong. Because, guess what? We're dead wrong a lot. And not just that. But we need people, when we're demotivated, when we're discouraged, to take the spurs and get us moving again. Toward Christ. Toward loving Him and loving other people and Walking in good works. We need to be provoked. Second thing we need. We need to gather regularly. Look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some. I've heard preachers say it and I agree. It's encouraging to see that they're dealing with the same thing in the first century church. A lack of attendance. And the author says that's not good. That word neglect is a strong word. Neglecting the gathering. You know who else used that word? Jesus. When he's hanging on a cross. And he says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken, neglected me? That's not good. We don't neglect or forsake Christ's bride. And neglecting or forsaking the assembly is a serious crime. It cannot become your habit or your pattern of practice. And you need to wrestle with the personal application of this. For you and your family, what is your custom? 
What is your practice? Do family events consistently take priority over church attendance? Are you justified to say, well, this is just the pattern for soccer season or for baseball season? Or hey, you know, it's just once a month. If somebody did something consistently, regularly, once a month, would you say it's a habit? And listen, people always try hard. They come to me as the pastor and they try to justify their lack of attendance. They give me all kinds of excuses. Come to me and tell me, Pastor, it's just this season. Pastor, it's just this day. Pastor, this is why. Listen, I always redirect them. Don't convince me. Don't convince me. You're not bargaining for Sunday attendance with me. I'm not the high priest. You want to bargain for Sundays? Go to Him. Go confidently into the throne room of God. And give him your excuse. Give him your justification. Can you still do that? It's his church, not mine. But we're given this command, this extra, don't neglect to meet together. Don't make it your habit. Because we need to gather regularly. By the way, you go to Acts chapter 2 and you say, what does regular gathering look like? What does it look like to gather regularly? Is it just limited to Sunday attendance? Seems to be more than that. If you look at the New Testament church, they were devoting themselves, the apostles teaching the prayer and the fellowship regularly, day by day, going to each other's houses and eating meals together. That's a lot. That seems to be regular. I'll leave you with the personal application and just leave you with this also too. What happens here cannot be replaced by Zoom, YouTube, or podcasts. I don't need to belabor that point. You know that. We need to gather regularly. Third, we need to be encouraged. We need to be encouraged. Verse 25, the second part of it. Encouraging one another. This is an important compliment to the provoking. Because the provoking, the constant nagging, the constant like getting after weaknesses, that can become over time, irritating, frustrating, discouraging, right? And I got to be careful of this as a parent. If I only correct bad behavior, if I'm only going after the weaknesses, then I can discourage my kids so much that they're not motivated to grow or motivated toward righteousness. There's important balance As a parent, there's important balance in the life of a church to encourage one another. We need encouragement. We need words that build us up and not tear us down. I can't tell you how important encouragement is in my life. I need it. I'm a fool to say, I don't need the encouragement. I need encouragement. I had a guy come up to me recently, a dear brother. He's grown a lot. I'm super excited about what God is going to do through him. I think he's going to go into the ministry. His name's Eddie. And he came up to me and he said, uh, hey, pastor, I just want you to know, you probably don't hear this a lot. Or you probably don't, or sorry, he said, you probably do hear this a lot. He says, you probably hear this a lot, but you're doing a good job. Like you're preaching the word, you're leading us well, you've got a good vision. I know you probably hear this a lot, but you're doing a good job. I say, you know, Eddie, to be honest with you, I don't hear it enough. Thank you, brother. Thank you for encouraging me. I need that. I need that. And I don't say that just to, you know, throw a pity party for pastors. 
Like we're not encouraged enough. But I'll tell you, in general, a weakness of the church, especially the American church today, discontent, unthankful, is that we are bad encouragers. We're not good encouragers. If at best we're flatterers, which is a lie to boast somebody up to manipulate them to get what you want. But a strong encouragement is to identify a strength in someone's life, something they're doing well, that is truthful, and to encourage them with it. Build them up. Hey, I see the way you give every Sunday, sacrificially showing up here at 5.30 a.m. Do the guys still do that? 6 a.m., whatever. Good job, brother. Or hey, I notice that your son serves with you every Sunday. Praise God. What an encouragement to see that modeled for him as a father to a son. Or hey, I just want you to know, young lady, I know you just had a miscarriage and that's hard. And you just went through loss. But I am so encouraged just to see you come to church today, to surround yourself with believers, to let people in to know that you, you lost a child. That's a big step. I want to encourage you in that. Let's grow in encouragement. We all need it. We all need it. Okay, so we, we need to be provoked. We need to gather regularly. We need to be encouraged. Every single one of us needs that. But guess what? It's not about what you need. It's not about what you need. I, I, I drew out these needs in your life because I want you to identify with them. We all need this. But guess what? The author tells you to go serve the needs of others. It's outward, not inward. Don't come to church because you need it. Come to church because they need it. The church needs you. Don't come primarily to meet your own personal need. The church needs you. They need to be provoked by your good example. They need to gather regularly. So don't let anybody slip. They need to be encouraged. So speak wholesome words that build up others and benefit them in godliness. You remember the command or the exhortation, let us consider? Know that that is a present participle? You know what the sense is? That you're continually, ongoing, consistently thinking about not yourself, but others. Not just others. The church. The saints. What, what are your daydreams like? And when you find a moment to yourself, just a moment to think, do your thoughts wander to the people of God? Others? Who needs encouragement this week? Who can I serve this week? Who can I stir up? I'm, I'm noticing Bob or Jan, they're discouraged. They're at a spiritual plateau. They need some spurs. They need a, a loving, a gentle encouragement. Who, who can I serve and encourage this week? Do your thoughts wander there consistently, regularly? Or are your thoughts wandering towards work? Listen, there's a place for everything. When you're working, you're working. But when you have a free moment to yourself, the author encourages you to consistently consider the church. To stir up one another. And by the way, the people who really get church get this. They get this. They're not here for themselves. They're here for Christ, number one. Then they're here for others, number two. And notice, so far in the passage, there's not a lot of eyes and me's. There's not a lot of you individually. 
It's for Christ, for his church. And then finally, for yourself. Listen, the the most fulfilled I am leaving church, the most fulfilled I am leaving church is when I've spent it all that Sunday on Christ and others. When I've come with a heart that is truly thankful for the great sacrifice he made, truly in love for Jesus, because he is my Lord, he is my Savior, he's my King, I love him, and I've worshipped him, and then I'm looking out, people I can encourage, people I can stir up, people that need a kind word, people that need a gentle rebuke, and I'm just giving myself. I leave that Sunday going, I am fulfilled. It's ironic. The more you give here, the more you get. It's true. Are you here for Christ and for others? I don't know how I'm doing on time, but Terrell and Jesse took four minutes. So it's their fault, not mine. The final reason you need the church, here it is. The final reason you need the church, the end is coming. The end is coming. Look at the end of verse 25. First of all, let us draw near to him. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us consider how to stir up one another. And all the more. All the more important this is. Why? Because the day is drawing near. The day. I believe the day in context was referring to the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ. If you look northwest on a clear day from here, northwest, you will see the San Gabriel Mountains. That's where I live. I live at the foothills, Rancho Cucamonga. But if you see them from here, it just looks like a big blob, kind of one unit, one mountain. Then you drive up the 15 freeway, you turn left on the 210 west, and that's where I live, Rancho Cucamonga. But you keep going west on the 210 and you turn a corner and, you, and you, start, you start going north on what's called Mountain Road. You'll see that there are multiple peaks in this mountain range. The big peak that you see from afar is called Cucamonga Peak. I live at the bottom of that. But if you go around and you turn up Mountain Road, you see a more dominant, higher peak. It's known as Baldy. Baldy's the highest summit in that mountain range, above 10,000 feet. And then you drive up Mountain Road, you go through Baldy Village, and, and then you see Baldy right ahead of you. Here, here's the point of the illustration. In the Old Testament, as the prophets wrote about the day of the Lord, they saw a big mountain range. They saw a coming Messiah, but could not distinguish the different pinks, different pinks, different peaks. They could not understand yet that the Messiah would come not just once, but twice. In his first coming, we'll call that Cucamonga Peak, he came to serve and to make a sacrifice to save us, the lost. He came to live a perfect life, to die on the cross in our place, and to rise again from the dead. That's what he came to do. He came to seek and save the lost. He came as the anointed servant of God to atone for our sins. But he's coming again. And friends, you and I, we don't have the vantage point of the prophets in the Old Testament. 
We live in 2023 AD. So where are we? We're on Mountain Road, past Cucamonga Peak. We have the vantage point of looking back and seeing what Jesus did in His first coming. But we're moving north. We're moving toward Baldy. The great return of our King. And that is coming quicker today than it was yesterday. Or the day before. Or the day before that. It is drawing near. And you know what's cool about this passage? In the beginning, it said, let us draw near, right? To God. Let us come together and arrive together to Him. Now, the text is telling us that day is coming near. That day is drawing closer and closer and closer. Friend, what are you going to do about it? What's your plan? What's your plan? The end, the day when Christ returns is drawing near. Are you going to circle the wagons of your little family? Build a basement to hunker and bunker down in when the end of the world comes? Are you going to buy a bunch of food supplies, rations, ammunition to get ready for the big whatever it is, World War III? There's rumors of war. Jesus told us those would be the birth pangs, the signs that the end is drawing nearer and nearer. What are you going to do? What's your plan? The author of Hebrews tells you, this is what you should be at the top of your plan. You need the church. You need the church now more than ever. You need the church more today than you did yesterday. More tomorrow than even today. You need God's people desperately right now. Do not forsake the church because the day is drawing near. You need it more now than ever. Because Christ is coming back. Will he find you a good steward of your time, your gifts? Will he find you faithful to his bride? To love the people that he has entrusted to you? To serve, to love, to gather with? Will he find you a slothful servant? More enamored with the world, living for the American dream, building your kingdom, but not interested in Christ's kingdom. You need the church because that great mountain peak is drawing near day by day. You're, we're going north. And it's coming. Don't you see how important the church is? Don't you see how, how desperately we need it? And again, just a reminder, this isn't a building this isn't an institution. This, these are people that we need desperately because Jesus draws us here together. He draws us here together by His great sacrifice and by His authority. You need the church. You need the church because the Word is preached here. God's promises are revealed to you here, exposited to you here, and you need to hold fast to those promises together so that you can have hope. In a lost and chaotic world. You need the church because the church needs you. Not only do you have these needs in your life. But these people need you. You need to be here for them. And you need the church. Because the end is coming. Jesus is coming back. You can be sure. That's a promise. Take it to the bank. Deposit that check. You need the church now more than ever. Maybe you need to reprioritize your life. And love the church more. I hope you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us a beautiful, beautiful bride. A bride that is Christ's, 
a bride that we would not dare defile or neglect or forsake, but a bride that we have a stewardship to, we have responsibilities to, we have a commitment to. I pray that every person in this room would be reignited by the gospel, reinvigorated, reestablished in their priorities and their commitment to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.